0: Hey, welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Coming this Tuesday is the Ringer's third annual NBA Palooza, celebrating the tip-off of the 2019-2020 NBA season. Make sure you're subscribed to the Ringer's YouTube channel so you don't miss our day-long live stream, including the premiere of the new season of NBA Desktop, the fourth installment of our Take Hunter series with a surprise twist, the unveiling of the Bill Simmons' Lakers wine bottle team, and a live Ryan Russillo podcast to go along with so much more. Again, you can check all that that out at youtube.com slash ringer.
1: I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now.
0: Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, I will follow him into the dark. It's
1: Andy Greenwald! Oh, so you've been in my editing bay then? <laughs> you know you know how dark it gets how's it going coming man coming to you live from the park coming to you live from the parking lot buddy coming to you live from the sinkhole which is my mental state uh, just, just just trimming away here episode 7
0: a lot uh, of a lot of uh, filmmakers say it all comes together in post you know
1: yeah well first it falls apart though and then you have to bring it back together it's a very emotional emotional experience uh-huh and If I could give you an analogy, and I and I mean this because this is purely my own, you know, my own challenge is dealing with my own shortcomings here. This is in no way a referendum on all the talented people who worked on the show. But sometimes when I'm sitting here, I think about how when I was a kid, we had pet cats. I think you did too, right? Yeah. And I don't know if your parents came from the sort of old school pet parenting, but I remember I think my grandparents did this with dogs too. Maybe I'm about to out my whole family as like you know. As, as PETA targets, but I remember that one of the things that my, my dad would do if the cat like threw up on the rug, uh-huh. my dad would be like, cat, look at what you did. <laughs> look at what you did, cat. Yeah, and, like, that was a method though.
0: Do you think, are we not allowed to do that with cats anymore?
1: I, I don't know. I thought you were supposed to you show the cat the,
0: the hairball and be like, no, no, no.
1: Right, right. That was, that was the method. And so
0: is that a millennial? Is, the is, 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 is there a generational difference? In no, cap?
1: my dad totally did that too. All right, so okay, we're we're okay. Okay, good. I was a little worried. I was, I was worried as I was about to get pet canceled. But listen, <laughs> that is essentially what editing is like. Right. It's just like multiple months of being forced to like have your nose pushed in the mess you made and dealing with it.
0: So all that stuff about like, we'll fix it in post. That d- That doesn't yeah, really work.
1: Oh, no, no, you fix it. You fix it, but first you have to acknowledge how broken it is. It's Got deeply, deeply psychological. <laughs> um, but it, it's ultimately, it's the greatest thing because, yeah, you can fix it and you, you're forced to get creative, but first you have to mourn all the things that you saw you had that you probably didn't get.
0: How much of your CGI um, budget have you blown yet?
1: <laughs> um, on my own, on work on myself or on the show?
0: <laughs> yeah, have you de-aged yourself? <laughs> have you given yourself an yeah, I, avatar ponytail?
1: <laughs> I am covered. You haven't seen me in a week. I'm covered head to toe in ping pong balls. <laughs> and I am now fluent in Navin, which, yeah. is, as all of the avatar superfans know is the language, right? Uh, from the movies. One other, th- two other points, Chris, cause I know this is a big show. You did an interview with my old friend, Josh Schwartz and his writing partner, Stephanie Savage about looking for Alaska. I'm heartbroken that I couldn't have joined you for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Before we get into that, two quick pieces of business. One, I, I I was so excited. I feel like felt like it was very on brand for us and for the show to have the New York Times write about our podcast in a wonderful way. as They did this week. Great piece by Reggie I Was very grateful to him. Longtime listener. Uh, great to talk to him about our show, um, and great to know that the piece ran the same day our most recent episode posted an episode that began with a seven minute long endorsement of cocaine (laughs) in family circumstances. That's right. I feel like that was great for us. Then if you're going to do blow, you might as well
0: do it in front of three children and then sing a song from Oklahoma.
1: Yeah. Yes. And I'm sure that's going to bring Thomas's English muffins and all, (laughs) all our old friends back to the yard. Um, two, I just want you to know that, um, you know how, I'm sorry to out you like this, but you and your wife enjoy going on haunted hay rides. Yes, when it's, when we went it's last night. We went last night. In in this autumnal 95 degree heat we're experiencing yeah. here in Southern California.
0: I definitely have like a pretty serious rep- respiratory infection from inhaling <laughs> hot hay all night. <laughs> <laughs> whenever whenever, whenever we run out of drugs in this country, we can just start smoking hay fumes because let me tell you something. <laughs> some weird dreams.
1: This, this is pure coastal elite stuff, because I think the great men and women of the heartland of this country have been smoking hay out of boredom for generations. <laughs> I'm sure that's a thing. Uh, and then maybe they sing Oklahoma. But anyway, I was talking to my wife about how you guys were doing your annual trip on the Haunted Hayride, and my children heard me. And it was just really a fascinating and very instructive moment where my older daughter heard me say the words Haunted Hayride and immediately freaked out. <laughs> and was like, "Is that going to happen to me?" And I was like, "No, we don't ever ride on you know barnyard equipment, and it's not real. It's something that that Chris and his wife liked to do. And she was just totally freaked out during breakfast. And meanwhile, my two and a half year old is just shoveling oatmeal. And she looked up and she said, "Is that real or made up?" <laughs> I said, "It's made up." And then she just then she nodded and she said, "I want to do that."
0: Did and she, she really eating oatmeal? Yes. There were some very I would love to have seen uh Andy Greenwald parenting ombudsman in the building. I would like there was a few people who were really pushing Daddington to its absolute limits by having incredibly small children in some really psychologically traumatizing situations last night.
1: Yeah, no, yeah. I'm out on that. You yeah, know, you already know. Everyone listening you knows. So essentially the Haunted Hayride Um, is
0: like you go and you, you know, you go into this part of Griffith Park in Los Angeles and you go and line up and and they put you on a tractor driven, you know, hay bin or whatever. And you go through these parts of Griffith Park that have been, you know, done up to resemble, there was like last night, there was a, a kind of a Hills Have Eyes thing of like inbred people. And then there was uh, like a vampire situation where like vampires were hanging from like a wire over some trees. And then there was like a kind of 1950s makeout point thing where a a wolverine attacked a couple who were necking. Um, (laughs) And the whole time, just like people are running at you, setting off chainsaws, hitting your cart with aluminum bats. And there were several children there. Like several, so I, I was I was really curious about what what your take would have been on like that. Also in attendance, and I don't think I'm outing him because he seemed to be very willing to take pictures with fans. Was Lakers shooting guard Danny Green? Uh,
1: was he was he one of the part of a couple necking at Wolverine? No, Point, I think he... he was looking
0: for an environment that most resembled the Lakers locker room. <laughs> and it was
1: it was the Haunted <laughs> era. I I just it was such a profound. Uh, both parenting and cultural moment for me where my older daughter just kept saying, why does he want to do that? And I was like, some people think it's fun to be scared. And she said, but why? And I said, I have honestly been asking that question for 40 years, Like, I, I don't know. I don't know why people like that, but, but ask uncle Chris, you know, <laughs> uncle Chris.
0: um, Andy today, I, I did want to talk to you. Did you have any other, uh, passing Larry King esque thoughts that you wanted to share with us?
1: I'll save it for Monday. Okay. I do. I do have a. I do have a recent phenomenon that I wanted to run by you. That I bet you will. Be, I bet you will have your own anecdotes for. It. And it. it it's. Uh, just to give people a sneak preview of the the scintillating stuff <laughs> they can look forward to on Monday. It's. I'm curious how many people in your life, Chris, who know that we've been recording this podcast under two titles? Yes, but for the last seven plus years, yeah. Call you and personally ask for like an bespoke podcast on a certain subject. They're like, though your your thoughts on something are out there, they would like to call you and have you tell them your thoughts because they don't have time to listen to the podcast.
0: Oh, like when when I'm like, okay, so all of my television thoughts and, and thoughts on pop culture are relatively public record, but people are still like, yeah. I know that you have a pod and probably talked about Watchmen, but just yes. tell me what you think.
1: Yeah. Am I supposed to guess who yeah. asked you for that? It was Chuck Klosterman. But- <laughs> I talked to Chuck yesterday and he's like, so what are your thoughts on El Camino? And I was like, okay, well, I could point you to a download link or it'll get me through traffic to Culver city, but we can discuss, we can discuss our personal podcast foibles on Monday because I know you've got a big show. You've got an interview. Yeah. I just, you wanted you wanted to set the table. Yeah.
0: So uh, Josh and Stephanie came in to talk about looking for Alaska, which I, I've, I very warmly talked about. I, I think Josh was very happy with my description of it, which was, Dead Poets Society meets 2005 emo, Uh, and I think it's just this really lovely story uh, based on the John Green novel, set in 2005. The novel itself came out in 2005, and Josh, you know, Josh was like, I think I always thought it was sort of loosely based in the late 90s, but we, we know, we set the show when the when the book came out. And it was a really interesting conversation with Josh just because I think looking for Alaska is indicative of a lot of the stuff that's happened in the entertainment industry since 2005. Uh, because mm-hmm. shortly, when the book was in galleys, actually, is when Josh first wrote a feature script adaptation of the, the book. So which, yeah, which, he, I,
1: which I remember reading at the time.
0: Yeah, and he's been working on and off on this project since then. And, and finally, like in... I think 2017 or whenever it was, they they very quickly went into production. You know, once they once they got this and got Paramount and Hulu on board and, and they they found the right cast, they they went into production and now now the show is finally here. And it was a really interesting conversation, both about um, you know, how you couldn't have done something like this fifteen years ago. There really weren't limited series. There were weren't eight episode television shows back then, for the most part. And also, uh, just about revisiting. Things from your childhood, or from your adolescence, or from your early twenties that had a certain resonance for you then, and then you look back—you know—if you look back on with older eyes, like how different those those pieces of pop culture can be. Uh, so I know that you haven't really gotten a chance to dig into the show yet, but you're going to. The thing I did want to talk to you about was music plays a huge part in this show. And 2005, we were both pretty—I mean, pretty much—made our bread and butter working in music. And uh, it, yeah. was a, it was a really cool time. You were really more, you, you know, you were like a lot of the bands that are on the soundtrack for this uh, for this show, like Rilo Kylie, um, The Strokes, Gosh, Clap Your Hands, Say Yeah. There's covers of Death Cab for Cutie, Modest Mouse. Like we were writing about these bands and going to see these bands a lot back then. I, I was working at a record store in New York City. Um, I don't know if I was working there in 05. I might have not. I might have been in a magazine by then. But in any case, like, it's a really interesting um, time capsule and it led me to going back to looking at the the Spin Magazine um, top 40 of of 2005.
1: This shit holds oh, boy, up. Be... What, what was our adverb rate like in the blurbs you and I wrote for those? I don't know if I, I, I,
0: assume but... I'm in some of these. I, I'm just looking at the list, not the blurbs. I, I just looked at uh-huh. the Young GZ Thug Motivation 101 one was written by <sighs> our buddy John Caramonica. But the number yeah. one record of the year, according to Spin, was Late Registration by Kanye. Uh, then there's RLR mm-hmm. by, uh, by MIA. Uh, Franz Ferdinand, Gorillas, LCD Sound System, Block Party, Silent Alarm, New Pornographers, Delicious. Twin Cinema, Sufjan Stevens, Illinois, Fiona Apple, Extraordinary Machine, and Hold Steady, Separation Sunday. That's the top 10.
1: It's pretty good. I mean, that really puts me in the back booth at Hi-Fi again. With <laughs> you and your <laughs> aforementioned and, and Chuck, that is really... That is prime time. Yeah. I mean, I, it's interesting. And this is part of the conversation that I, I know you probably had with Josh, but like, it's almost better to do this now with hindsight and with some reflection, because it's very, very hard to know what is, a lot of things, what's actually important in the sort of emotional stew of the moment, especially when you're a little bit younger, whether you're as young as the characters in a show like that, or you're as young as we were, like, you know, 27, 28 years old, Working in this industry, trying, you know, chasing whatever dreams existed at the time. But it's also very hard to, as you just alluded to, shake out what you love fleetingly and what you love enduringly. And particularly in the case of music. And now, in retrospect, you know, we were the beneficiaries of uh, a time in our lives to be fans and also to be uh, critics and involved in that world where it felt like the tap was never going to turn off, that every era of whatever you want to call it, whether it was rock or pop, was going going to be replaced with a different era, yeah. right? That we sort of came of age as fans in the early 90s, obviously when alt-rock and grunge and all that happened. And then we got deeper and deeper into indie or, or, you know, or whatever category of indie you want to talk about, whether it was punk or emo or twee or whatever. And then moving to New York City and seeing not just New York City rock and roll bands roll through, but seeing this... Kind of next generation takes a leap, whether it was Modest Mouse, who was a band that you know that that you and I knew very well in the '90s, suddenly becoming a top forty concern, but also this next generation of people who seemed primed to replace their elders, whether it was Jenny Lewis and Ryley Kiley or Ben Gibbard and Death Cab, and it just felt like it would be an ongoing thing where people would bubble up in the way that we they had done for decades, and then take the leap, and then to be plugged into that moment of fandom when people were taking a leap to make what yeah. felt like great era-defining work, that was what it meant for us, I think, to be music fans. And I know for Josh too, right? That was to go on that ride and to get on that ride early was part of the rush. And you didn't have to be, you know, hanging out at a indie rock bar in, on the Lower East Side to feel connected to it. Sure. And in retrospect, that was the end of something. Which isn't to say there's not good music now, but that particular uh, roller coaster kind of got, disassembled not too long after that, right?
0: No, absolutely. I'm just, I'm just, I'm scanning over this list now. Can I read you something? Yeah, yeah. Four art school types wed de post-punk with jangly melancholy from the Cure playbook. On dance force mm. staples like Banquet and She's Hearing Voicemans. She's Hearing Voices, mm. frontman Kelly O'Kerkey fuels heartbreak disco with visceral narratives about growing up and coming down.
1: Mm. Andy Greenwald. Wow. First of all, <laughs> it just proves I've always been passionate about visceral narrative. That has, oh, al- but I've always been passionate about two things, Chris. Visceral narrative and doing that, that sticky trick thing where you say something's up and something's down. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that, that was, that was a really big blurb trick was to be like the, the up and the up and down thing was, was definitely like a, a huge trope. I, uh, my, my contribution to the list was, uh, a blurb about the Mars Volta's Francis the Mute.
1: <laughs> Dude, how many times have you spun that little disc in the last decade?
0: <laughs> no comments. Um, well, I I I think we can leave it at that. I want to get to our interview with Josh and Stephanie. Uh, it was a really interesting time. It's interesting.
1: Wait, wait. Oh, oh we wait yeah. do last yeah, yeah. question. Because when you said you wanted to talk about these years in music, there's one song in particular that really jumps out as like a song that I think we both celebrated that feels very tied to that era, even if it's not represented in "Looking for Alaska," which is Jimmy World's work. Oh yeah from the album Futures, which I think both you and I think of as, like, maybe, like, you know, the the Sistine Chapel ceiling of a certain type of post-punk pop emo. Yeah. And just, like, that song sounded like all of the kind of dorm room emotions you felt in college exploding into the widescreen possibilities of real life. And I really wonder if...
0: It, it, would you it, say it sounded I, I, like I, going up and coming down?
1: I would say it sounded like going up, and then you would never have to think about going down again. That's I would say. Like <laughs> I, I would have definitely worked in something about how the elevator's broken or whatever. The escalator only moves one way, my brother. Um, <laughs> w- help me shape this into a thought about why this era feels so ripe for a show like this for people of our age, and then hopefully for younger fans of John Green as well.
0: Yeah, J- Josh and Stephanie were really articulate about that. I think that it's um, the most memorable, it's it's the re- most recent time right before the proliferation of smartphones. And so there right. is a degree of nostalgia for life before everybody kind of communicating constantly with this computer in their hands. I mean, obviously, like, I know your your boy had a T-Mobile sidekick. Did you have a Blackberry?
1: <laughs> Never. Did you ever? Never. You were, I
0: didn't. You were Team Razor?
1: never oh yeah what well, kind of yeah i was team moto for sure and i was also team duck into the apple store uh to check your email on, uh, to check your email like that was your, i would i would come out of the train at uh at broadway lafayette and walk down two blocks of the apple store to check my email <laughs> to find out where people were meeting that night to do the thing we did every night no you did not you make it record. sound
0: like you're john dos passos <laughs>
1: Well, I was <laughs> of that era, wasn't I? Just writing about the wars, the great wars soon rend red to pieces. No, because you guys all worked in Manhattan in offices, and I was freelancing or being a writer or whatever I was for Spin. So I was in Brooklyn, so I would always need to come in and then find out where everybody was.
0: I worked at the, in the back of Kim's. It wasn't exactly like a, a gleaming skyscraper.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, you were Sinclair Lewis, right? You were... You were you were, you were reporting live from the from the packing plant. <laughs> um, anyway, I think that's a, that's a beautiful thought, but I am, I am really curious and I hope that our listeners who have checked out the show and maybe like some of these records, maybe we'll throw together a playlist or something. Yeah. I think we should for ourselves. Yeah, the Looking I'd for Alaska know, soundtrack
0: is available on Spotify, but we can maybe put together an 04 to 06 I, music playlist.
1: Yeah, and I'd love to know It'll be all Mars it, Volta, <laughs> It's all Francis, the mute, deep cut. <laughs> um, if... You were seventeen those years, if you were twenty seven or if you were you know either younger or older than that, what your relationship to that pre smartphone era is culturally and how it how it resonates for you that's it's good stuff that's yeah. A good
0: man. yeah no, there's a lot of like you know talking on pay phones hanging out together under a covered bridge and smoking together going on in the show, and a lot of it is you know not necessarily like that people don't do that anymore but if euphoria is to be believed they do it a different way.
1: I- I just gathered us all together at Hi-Fi and then one by one serenaded you with my favorite songs from Oklahoma.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Andy, thanks so much for calling in. Uh, We will talk to you Monday. I'm sure we'll be talking about Watchmen and a bunch of other
1: stuff. Check out this interview, Baranskis. I'm going to listen.
0: Yeah, all right. Uh, The quick word from our sponsors and then my interview with Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage, uh, the people behind Looking for Alaska. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Watchmen. Nothing ever ends. Rolling Stone calls HBO's Watchmen a dazzling reinvention, a reimagining of the world originally seen in the groundbreaking 1980s graphic novel of the same name. Damon Lindelof's Watchmen is set in an alternate history of present-day America, where the lines between vigilantes and mass crime fighters are blurred, and the only true superhero is nowhere to be found on earth stylized darkly funny and profoundly human as its characters struggle with personal and ethical issues the series stars regina king gene smart don johnson and jeremy irons and features music from trent reznor and atticus ross Watchmen is spectacular equal parts insightful and exciting hails Indy wire catch new episodes of Watchmen every sunday at 9 p.m only on hbo All right, so I'm so excited to be joined by Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage, who are the folks behind Looking for Alaska on Hulu, which Andy and I talked about a little bit a couple of days ago or like last week. I love this show. I watched it over the course of a couple of weeks with my wife. We both adored it. And I'm so happy to have you guys back on the show. So thanks for joining me. Thank Thank you. you. for having me. Always happy to be back. Yeah. So this is something that's been kicking around. I think, you know, I, I actually was talking to a friend of mine who said, oh, I loved that script, this film script that you wrote. There's somebody who works in the industry who is like, I, I remember Josh's script that he wrote for the feature. So this is something that I don't know if everybody knows you've been working on since pretty much when the book came out.
2: Yeah, it's been a 14-year It's been a fourteen year journey. Wow. And uh, I like to joke, Stephanie is tenacious. I usually fold at the first sign <laughs> of resistance uh, like a cheap suit. But there was just something about this book. From the first time I read it, I read it in galley form. Uh, it was unpublished. John Green was a then-yet-unknown Author, not the like household name uh, phenomenon he would become, and just fell in love with the writing, with the characters, the tone, and just couldn't get it made as a feature. John was really happy with the first draft that we wrote, and and now having had some time and perspective and looking back on it, and, and trying to be generous towards these studios that wouldn't make to the studio that wouldn't make it all these years. It was a challenging feature. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a, it's not an obvious studio movie, uh, and
0: especially it, not now. I well, guess. Definitely but, not, not now. But, but then I, you know, was was there stuff like that that you remember from oh five, oh six that was a little bit more. There was like always this? a movie
2: that would get through. Like we set it up with uh, the original producers that I set up with at Paramount were Mark Waters and Jessica Chinsky, and, who were partners, and Mark had just come off of Mean Girls. Uh-huh. So, you know, I guess that was a but again, very different kind yeah. of tone and genre.
3: But it was almost like when Josh set it up, Gail Berman had been uh, our boss at Fox when we were working on The O.C., which we were still working on at the time. And then Gail went over to Paramount and she bought it for Josh, which, you know, was really like a wonderful kind of confluence and coming together. But it was almost at the last moment where you could even— Reasonably buy a book like that to make it into a studio film.
0: So when can you tell me what that means? Like, I mean, obviously, I know I know what you mean by the option thing, but do you just mean like the the trade winds were so strong that you knew this kind of stuff? Because this is well, way before- I would say
3: we didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say we we were caught off guard by those winds, where it was like like when I started working. Um, when I, I, my first job was working with Drew Barrymore and her partner Nancy and at Flower Films. And the first movie that I worked on that got made was Never Been Kissed. Mm-hmm. And that was 1999. And when that came out, it was like there were one of those movies in the theater at all times. Yeah. Like 10 Things I Hate About You and She's All That were like, Still in the theater. Sure. Think, Plus Election, Rushmore. Yeah, Election, yeah. Rushmore. There was a real range of like— American Pie. High—American Pie was that year. High, low, more comedic, more dramatic. Yeah. And that, I think, by 2005 was— Thinning out. Deeply thinning out. And then, and then, out. 08 and then
0: Iron Man, Dark Knight, and— Yeah, yeah Goodbye. And goodbye. I mean, again,
2: there's like one a year maybe that gets through. You know, there's the Haley Steinfeld movie a couple years yeah. ago. But again, those are almost more indie— movies, you know, Lady Bird a couple years ago. Yeah,
3: and now they're Netflix movies. Now they're Netflix
0: movies. Now there's one a week on
2: Netflix, (laughs) so
3: that's good. I mean,
0: um, we did a uh, podcast, like a sort of um, spinoff of the main rewatchables podcast that we do here. We did one about 1999 movies, and just to go back and be like, wow, The Insider was considered like kind of a, a big deal, but now it would be Dark Water with the Mark Ruffalo movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's kind of like this quiet movie that Mark Ruffalo gets to make because he's been playing the Hulk for 10 years. It's such a different, different circumstance. Um, so tell me a little bit, because one of the reasons why I'm so excited to talk about this, aside from the fact that I really connected with the show itself, was that it is kind of uh very indicative of the changing nature of the entertainment industry and in television and movies to see the progress of this property for lack of Mm -hmm. a better term over the course of the last 15 years basically so when the first film version of the story sort of collapsed or whatever Mm -hmm. did you let go no okay (laughs) (laughs) Uh, problematically so i did not let go
2: i kept rewriting the movie there'd be different studio head would come in i wrote you know there's like the prank academy version of the movie there's the super somber version of the movie. i mean you're writing all these drafts and you're just to yourself you're going what am i actually doing here Mm -hmm. because what's the win like, they actually do agree to make this movie, and it no longer resembles what we set out to make right. to begin with.
3: I mean, while the book is becoming more and more beloved. Sure. <laughs>
2: As John stock rises yeah. and Fallen Our Stars happens. And, right. And so, ultimately, there was an attempt. They, they tried to make the movie at one point without us. After Fallen Our Stars and, and Paper Towns, they mm-hmm. kind of brought in that team to take a run at it. And that was really heartbreaking. Because yeah. there's always things that you work on that ultimately don't move forward, and you have to let go. And I just could not let go. And if I was sitting somewhere, I could overhear some other people talking about the movie.
0: But did that happen?
2: Uh, you would hear about it, or you'd be, or your, your agent would bring it. You know, someone would reference the the word casting, or someone would in accidentally call you, thinking you were still involved. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> about uh, hey, I have a great actress to play Alaska, and literally, I would have like a psycho, like a physical reaction where like my neck would turn red. My it was just this thing I could not let go of, and then that movie fell apart in a really kind of, uh, I think for John, incredibly frustrating. Yes, because it
0: was th- there was a Sarah Polly version that was about to start filming, right?
2: There was that version. And then Sarah, I think, ended up walking away. And then there was another iteration with a really good director named Becca Thomas that they were going to make. And that fell apart. They just they couldn't agree on casting with the studio. I mean, people had been relocating. They were really close to making that version of the movie. Right. And when that fell apart, um, John was really, really frustrated. And the so, guy took it out on Twitter. Yeah. I think <laughs> if you go back, I don't know if he's deleted those tweets. but I think, they're they, are,
3: I, I think they are deleted. I was going to say <laughs> that I think he still has a,
0: a vlog up. In 2016, he, he's doing like a uh, Q&A from an airport terminal. And he's like— this isn't going to happen. So I've just kind of accepted that fact, and I'm frustrated, and it's upsetting. That but. was
2: probably after a couple of years of therapy. That sounds very—that <laughs> seems like pretty medium cool for how he was feeling at the time. But
0: in a strange way, it seems like—so when did the when did the turnaround happen? When did you guys become involved again?
2: So I, I had lunch with Wick Godfrey, who now runs Paramount Features, and mm-hmm. he had been the producer of Fault in Our Stars and had a long-standing relationship with John. He kind of told me the whole saga. And it was very clear that there was no returning to the feature film version. That that I think John had had it. So just had the thought of like, well, there's this new thing that's sweeping the nation. If you ask <laughs> Stephanie, it's not a new thing, it's a thing she's been proselytizing for a long time. <laughs> right. But was, there was
3: no way to do it. Sure. There's no way to program a We're mini-series. About lim- yeah, limited series. Yeah, yeah, limited series on network. There's no real like profit model for it in terms of foreign sales. So literally, this whole time while we're having like the Alaska heartbreak over here, the television business is evolving. So that streaming is like being invented, and new platforms come out, and the limited series becomes a thing that you can actually make and sell. I
0: want to get back to the development, but when? So when did you start talking about that? For when, as long as I've known her, really? Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, I loved miniseries growing yeah. up. I love I love books, and we love adapting things. So that feeling that one used to get a long time ago, and a lot of these I don't even really remember, Mm -hmm. like, what the shows were like, but, like, that, like, everyone would stop doing everything and only watch Thornbirds for a week, and, like, that's all, yeah, everyone would talk about it, and it didn't matter if you were, like, a parent, a kid, a male, female, like, what you actually liked Uh in life, like, everybody did that together, and it felt very, like, Communal. communal, and also, like, wonderful that they were always good stories that everyone like got something from and that why can't we still do that
0: right and now it's only been since obviously actually correct me if I'm wrong is it because you see a different caliber or at least in terms of popularity a different kind of actor saying I would do this if there was if I knew that there was an end point if there's like a, a limited engagement here kind of thing yeah, or I mean, is it just that in general people are looking for stuff and they don't care if it's a limited series or not are you talking about cast or are you talking about audiences? I'm talking about like what what, what changed that the networks are now oh. so amenable to this.
2: I don't know. It's streaming. I mean, I, yeah. I I forget what was sort of like the breakthrough title or even because we approached John about this two and a half years ago now, mm-hmm. and and the call was like there's a there's limited series now. Obviously, The Fault in Our Stars that film adaptation was as wildly successful as you could hope for. And rather than trying to kind of replicate that again, why don't we give audiences a different experience, an immersive experience, um, where you could have eight hours, you know, with these characters. You could have, I don't want to spoil anything, you could have six hours or six episodes with one of our characters to make it to the end. You just have more time to hang out and connect with these characters. Because I think part of what held it back as a feature adaptation as well was it's not plot-driven, right? It's not a high concept. It is a hangout show. Yes. It is about connecting with these characters. For us, it was a relief because it didn't mean having to cook up crazy plot twists and, you know, we uh, our teen soap background did not did not have to apply here. <laughs> yeah. that we could actually just hang out. We wanted to make sure, obviously, there was enough story to drive things forward and there we open in a way that you know something inevitable is coming, but that we could just kind of relax with these characters. So being able to offer that idea to John, he was instantly open to that, and very generous with the things that he loved most about the adaptation were things that were new mm-hmm. and things that were different. So anyway, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but we approached him with that idea, had kind of a rough idea of what the roadmap would be of how we could break this up into eight episodes. And then once we did finally go out and sell it, it happened really, really yeah. fast. And so what's the next hardest thing
0: is finding the kids? Absolutely. Finding, yeah. finding Miles in Alaska. Yeah. And was that... Uh, you knew it as soon as you saw it, when the folks who eventually played those roles walked in the door?
2: We did. We had met Christine Froseth during our Runaways casting process, mm. and then um, she got cast on something in the middle of that, but we were like— Is that
0: probably society? Because that's where I think I first saw her. Yeah, I like, that may have that been show. what yeah. she got yeah. cast
2: on. And we were just like, who is this person? And she has this kind of otherworldly presence, but she also has this real sweetness and a mystery to her. And so she was one of the first people we sat down with when we, when we started this. And Charlie Plummer, we actually— FaceTimed with to meet him yeah, first. because he was in New York. And he just had both of them have just such a huge connection to the book. Yeah. Uh, for Christine, it was the movie that we were not a part of, was her first audition for anything. Okay. So that had a huge okay. impact <laughs> wow. on her. And Charlie had been a little too young when they were casting the movie the first time Okay, in like 15, 16 or whatever. Yeah. yeah, and he was probably 15 or 16. Mm-hmm. And he actually wrote a letter to John back then. Wow. Extolling all the reasons why he wanted to be a part of it, which we were not aware of any of this. So yeah. there was a real kismet to all of it coming together the way it did. And then when Denny Love walked in as the colonel, you're just like, done. Has he <laughs> done Lights anything out. else? Not that not, we were aware yeah. of. I think he had done like a guest star. But he just walked in. And owned it. And we had talked to our casting director, Patrick Rush, who's cast so much stuff for us going back to the OC, that, you know, there's not going to – sometimes you're like, well, I could see that guy playing the part mm-hmm. or I could see that person playing the part where, like, there's going to be one person who walks in and is the colonel.
0: Right. And that'll, and we just have to find that one person. And when Denny walked in, we all knew. So did you did these kids get a chance to—how did did they form what was an obvious camaraderie on screen? Because I imagine that you guys have a lot of experience with putting together young casts and sort of hoping not only that they're going to be able to perform, but that they're going to have chemistry with one another and you're going to be able to get things that aren't necessarily on the page. What kind of stuff goes into kind of encouraging that kind of camaraderie?
3: Well, one of the first things that happened is that John took Charlie and Christine and our director of the first episode, Sarah Dina Smith, to— alabama mm-hmm. and kind of took them on a tour and so of his school where he went and um that but she was took real, us on that tour, I mean, as well before, on that tour yeah. yeah before so that was a real bonding experience for them and then sarah's very into actors mm-hmm. um and working with the actors and a lot of what she did with them wasn't like scene rehearsal it was just like trying to build those different dynamics between them and i think the actors were very into it like there was one point where denny had like a text thread that was like only with christine and jay because like
2: they didn't know miles yet (laughs) yet. right Right. (laughs) plus we plucked them down in like rural louisiana sure at this camp uh so that that was also going to be instantly bonding you know that they only really had each other right in this environment but we knew very early on the first day on set you know jay lee who plays takumi and Danny, who plays the colonel, they had their own secret handshake worked out. Like they had already kind of <laughs> lived in these relationships. Right. They
0: had gone go, go to training camp already. They had. Yeah. They had. The uh you can really feel the on-screen, off-screen similarities of of that idea that these kids are sort of going through this coming of age process while making this this show. It, it actually does really resonate. I was wondering, though, for you guys, as you revisit this text for lack of, you know, 15 years later, how your relationship to the characters changed over the years and whether or not you you think that you could have now in retrospect could have made the same quality of thing back in 2005.
2: I think, although I would never root for another project that we want to make to take, <laughs> to take 14 years to come together, I do really feel like it did come together exactly the right way. Mm-hmm. I feel like the limited series format was a much better format to tell this story than trying to do it as a two-hour movie, you know, especially a studio movie. And there were certain things that had changed since since the book came out. And we had a lot of conversations with John about that. The biggest thing, I think, was how Alaska had, you know, the sort of the manic pixie dream girl. Yeah, it's uh, become like
0: a, just a huge trope. Since a trope, then.
2: Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it wasn't really a trope when the book came out. Or it may have been, but it wasn't one that was sort of kind of— um, like Bandied guard, about.
3: Like, like Garden State is. is
0: where it sort of— and that's like, all around the same—
2: yeah. It's all around yeah. the same yeah. time. So— that wasn't It wasn't a problem, let's put it that way, mm-hmm. when the book first came out or one that people identified when the book first came out. But it was definitely something we felt like we needed to work on for the series. So the first couple of conversations that me and Steph and John had was, how do we free this from Miles' point of view? Mm-hmm. Obviously, he's our way into the story, and he's our way into Culver Creek. But once we get there, how do we give the audience more access to these characters, Alaska especially, than just Miles has? You know, John very intentionally, the book is about, as he puts it, the catastrophically limited adolescent male gaze which is a very <laughs> yes. John Green term <laughs> yes um, which works great in a book and and is a really smart kind of interesting concept to wrestle in a book but for a, a show and especially in 2019 we felt like Alaska near really needed to stand
0: on her own
3: yeah we didn't want to like embed that gaze into the making of the show sure and try and comment on it, we were like, what if we just didn't do that and did something else? <laughs> yeah, and I
0: think the ensemble nature of it and the roving perspective really changes it. Because I think in the beginning, you're like, okay, I get it. Like, she's—in a weird way, like, you start to have all the thoughts that you're worried that you're going to have. We're like, oh, right, I've seen this kind of character before. And then as soon as it starts to move around and rove a little bit, everybody kind of comes to life, and all the characters take on these extra dimensions. I was very curious about what it was like to go back to 2005, you know, for you guys too. Just in terms of, I, I think for me and Andy too, I mean, like we're always just like, that can't, it can't be the 15th anniversary of this album, is it? <laughs> That's not possible. No, the fact We saw about- the record release show of yeah. this band, you know, like, and we don't feel that way and it doesn't seem like it's that long ago, but. <laughs> we're about to close out the decade after that decade. Yes, I know.
2: <laughs> it's not comfortable for me. I was either. already
0: old at the beginning of this decade. Yes, yes. Um, but you guys also shaped the way we remember that decade in some ways and you know, with the work you did on television so what was it like going back to that it was really fun it was
2: really um it was shocking i mean it's not that long ago you know yeah. 15 years and yet the world has changed in so many ways and the way teenagers communicate has changed in so many ways and the book it's never explicitly stated the book is set in 2005 john felt like it was present day i always sort of read it as the 90s when he went to mm-hmm. school it's but it Because it's timeless, you know, because it has this sort of of out-of-time quality to it. And when you go to his school that he went to, you realize it's all outdoors, largely. Uh, And he would talk about people would gather in the woods and at the smoking hole, and you didn't know what was on TV, and you weren't worried about the internet. Like, the only news that was happening was, like, what was buzzing about at the school at that time. And so we wanted the show— To feel timeless as well, and so that was part of setting it in 2005. When I first wrote the feature, I had written songs into the script. Mm -hmm. I I even made a mix CD that went with the (laughs) script that got sent out, and it was current. It was current at the time. Um, Here's a band called Block Party (laughs) that I heard of, and uh, Wolf Parade. Anybody? And then (laughs) now, uh, so so when we decided to go back and and preserve that timelessness, it just felt right to set it in 2005. And we also really wanted to recreate the experience that readers had. Mm Um, when they read that book, you know, what, how they were feeling in their lives and how that book made them feel and just kind of tie that all together. Take take them back to that time period. So 2005 just presented itself.
3: And what is that if you were trying to imagine like Alaska's Instagram page and right. like how they're texting each other everything and like not sneaking in and out of each other's rooms and – Jeweling. Yeah.
0: <laughs> like No, but there's such a great built-in – Necessity for one to one contact by eliminating the iPhone stuff because they have to run across the campus to go knock on somebody's door yeah. and leave notes and the payphone. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, I remember yeah. the payphone being a central part of like college and just being like, oh, yeah. hey, you know, like your mom called and like here's a note and it's like three <laughs> days later. He's like, oh, okay. Yeah. But the other part of that so, – so we wanted 2005. We didn't want to lean too heavily into it. We have,
2: like, you know, MapQuest directions being printed or, like, Da Vinci Code on audio CD. Some details. Um,
3: Low-waist bootcut jeans. Yes, of course. Which right. are now, like, Lyra. back, right? Yeah. No, no, no
2: They will be in a year, yeah. So we didn't want to lean too heavily into it. But then the other part of it that was interesting for us is, you know, we have younger actors in the show. Yeah. So some of them were kind of looking to us like, what were the aughts? You know, <laughs> what is this music or what is that time? And so we've all of a sudden found ourselves like these.
3: Grandpa, come sit and by grandma and grandpa, and we'll tell you about how we used to gather around the radio. <laughs> um,
2: but the idea that their, their noses are buried in books and not buried in their phones. Yeah. And I, and I think it's okay maybe to pres- to present to teenagers today this idea of like you don't always you didn't always have to be on your phone you didn't always have to be on Instagram you could have a book and a conversation and maybe there's something idealized about that
0: that will kids today will warm to well i you know i or that ship is sailed that i'm I'm just, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, just old. I'm sure they exist in different ways now but i think what i always remember about that time in my life and then the years after that was something that you capture really well in this show which is the ability to recognize kindred spirits through these little things, whether it is music or whether it is your bo- your taste in books or whether it's just sense of humor, I thought that was one of the best things about the show is that you show how these kids are just on the outside of this. There's a class system going on there. There's these rich kids, but there's not, like, there's not overlap because the school seems small enough that everybody pretty mo- no much knows everyone. The gym is the gym, and that's the whole school, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I thought that, that you, you guys really captured that so well in the way that kids can kind of um, – Kind of wander in and out of different social circles in that way over the course of time, and that like you know the
2: colonel's dating a weekday warrior, and Alaska's roommates with one, but yet they hate each other. Yes, then you
3: find out when Alaska first came to school, she was friends with the weekday warriors until she met the colonel, and you know so it's it is more fluid in that way. And Takumi like talks to everybody because he needs all the information. information.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was wondering whether or not obviously the John Green novel is this sort of central text for it, but. Were there other things that you guys used, if not even as visual reference points, but as tonal reference points, or like Dazed or Dead Poets, that you felt like were good to either show the cast, to be like, this is kind of like the vibe we're looking for, or even just to keep in mind as you were making it? Dead
2: Poets was uh, definitely a great touchstone. And um, part of it was, I remember seeing that as a teenager, and it was set in the 50s. Yeah. Um, but just being like, that seems amazing. I wish I could just bicycle across campus <laughs> and like <laughs> kick a soccer ball and talk about poetry and who wouldn't want that, yeah. you know? Um, but it, it has a timeless quality to it that even in the 80s, it felt like it was transcending time. I think American Graffiti was a reference, Days and Confused. Those- Lady
3: Bird was something we talked about. Oh, yeah. Just how that handled period in a really nice way, that it was just sort of like softly period, but kind of transported you and also had a really lovely tone that blended humor and heart yes. in, a, in a complicated way.
0: Yeah, so I, I was curious because you guys have been working on and off about shows about people around this age group for so long that if there's there's something no matter whether it's set in Orange County or Manhattan or Alabama what's the universal thing I mean is that conversation that you've had before and what do you think it is that not only draws you to it but is the key thing that when you're telling stories about this for me I won't I mean we probably we might actually have different answers
2: for this for me I think it's the outsider story Mm -hmm. it's the idea that uh, whether it was in The O.C. or Gossip Girl or, or in Looking for Alaska Now or other shows that we've done, characters who who feel like outsiders, people who are looking for community, who are trying to find a place to fit in, and even the people you think fit in uh, don't feel like they do. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something that you really feel um, in a profound way when you're a teenager and when you're, when you're searching for an identity and you're searching for a community. So I feel like the outsider story is a story that – or stories about outsiders or something that we are always drawn to and that – the the teen story, I guess, the coming-of-age drama is a nice place to – is a is a good genre for that?
3: Maybe the uh, complement to that is the uh, Cherry Lane uh, Outsiders, Things Are Tough All Over. Yeah. That, like, yes. even the insiders actually are outsiders. And if you can take characters that feel like they sort of are the, you know, stock iconic teen characters and break them down so that you see that there's more there Yeah. Than-
0: isn't that like Friday might Night Lights thought? did that really well? Yeah. I thought, like, where it takes, you know, like, the prom king, prom queen. Yeah. And, and Riggins is supposed to be, like, rebel without a cause. And then they all kind of invert everybody's personalities, like like normal people mm-hmm. in that way. I, I have a couple of spoilery, like, questions. So I want to make sure that if you haven't gotten a chance to get through looking for Alaska or, um, or, or you know, you, you still have a few episodes left, you might want to hit pause until you do that now. And then bring a box of Kleenex. And then you. bring a box of <laughs> Kleenexes. So... I think the most striking thing about the, the 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 series is is the way that you guys handle Alaska's death, because as somebody who watches a lot of crime shows and a lot of I've I've you know if you've been through Broadchurch, you know how they handle death and stuff like You're that. Speaking Stephanie's language, yes. But uh, I would I would imagine that in a lot of cases, like take Dead Poets Society for instance, the death and Dead Poet Society is well, handled we, very. We didn't well. give anyone a spoiler warning on that. I know. Well, I feel like <laughs> twenty years. It's like okay, it's freaking. fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, that is treated like in a very probably feature film way. And it's like a kind of a coda that they deal with that. And they they kind of, it's not really known how they're going to go off into life thinking about that moment. But one of the things that's so remarkable, but remarkable about looking for Alaska is like, you guys have give these people space to mourn. And it's a different show at the end of the show. and It's kind of amazing. And so I wanted to ask specifically about the writing and the blocking out of episodes. Like, how did you decide when to stage this? When this was going to be executed and how you guys were going to deal with this, this event. Well,
2: again, it was conversation um, that we have with John because the, the after part of the book takes up probably more of the book than the after part of the story takes up in our show. Sure. So it was, you know, and part of it is driven by this investigation um, that intentionally goes nowhere. Mm -hmm. And this idea that if we could just find answers, we could somehow control what happened or change the past. And you need to kind of recognize that that is a, is a futile gesture and that you can't change anything. Um, so it was really about what is the maximum amount of time that we can spend with Alaska on screen while still having our, giving ourselves enough time to properly mourn her uh, and deal with the shock of, of her death. And then also to be able to bank that turn towards some kind of hopeful Ending. Yes. You know, that we can find some, because the story really is about having to live on even after something like this has happened. And how, where do you draw strength from and where do you draw hope from? Um, And that ended up feeling like, to just break it down, two episodes. Yeah. So
3: (laughs) she leaves at the end of six, and that's the end of the episode. And then seven really has the, you know, the shock, grief, mourning, the ritual of funeral and wake and ends with a question that's going to start the investigation in the next episode. So we kind of wanted to, like, get you in seven and just do the whole thing yes. so that when eight started, you could be ready for that turn.
2: And we also had a lot of conversations about while we were giving you much more access to Alaska, that you would be able to see more of her than Miles or the other kids saw as an audience member. You get to go with her to college with Jake. You know, and reframe mm-hmm. her as this girl who she's like the pie piper who seems to know it all when she's at school. Yeah. I and mean, she gets to college, all of a sudden she's this girl who hasn't read as much as these other kids <laughs> right. and is lost. Um so so while we were making these deliberate attempts along the way to give you access to her that that the characters didn't have, we still wanted the what happened when she drove out of the school to always remain unknown.
0: Yeah. And then I was curious, but with the, you know, you guys have obviously so many productions going and, and have been so prolific over the, l- the last 15, 20 years. Was the writing of this show different? Was the, especially not, not only given the, the limited nature of it, but the, the subject matter. What was the writer's room like? You know, was it different than other ones that you've had before? It was – I guess it was different. It was It was, it was smaller. Um, we
2: were able to use a lot of our Runaways writers and mm. kind of incubate between seasons two and, and three. Oh, that's really was, cool. Which was and nice. And then
3: Lila Gerstein, who was on the OC and Gossip Girl with us and created Heart of Dixie, came on uh, as well.
2: Oh, great. And it was yes. a diverse room and that led to a lot of conversations and things like, you know, the colonel um, becoming uh, African-American and uh, lots of good conversations that came out of it that I think opened the book up beyond what it was when it first came out. Um, But it was also a room that we worked really quickly. Mm -hmm. We didn't have a lot of time. Um, We kind of broke everything. Everybody had their scripts done by Thanksgiving or Christmas.
3: Yeah, we stayed in—this is like in the weeds, but for people who care. (laughs) We stayed in the room for the entire 10-week period. Nobody left.
2: Oh, so we just right. kept
3: breaking the entire time, and then people left to write their outlines and their script.
0: Because traditionally, what how does it usually work? Usually
3: when you're the first episode or the second episode, that person peels off and does their outline and goes on script. But we kind of didn't have enough people to do that, right. and we also didn't have enough time. So,
0: What were some of the things that you felt like you were able to keep or, or explore in the show that you wouldn't have been able to if, if it was a two-hour film? That is a great question. I, I was think, kind of wondering if, like, the pranks would have just been a montage. The pranks it? probably would have been a montage. Certainly
2: characters like Dr. Hyde, you uh-huh. know, played by Ron Cephas Jones, who's fantastic, and and the eagle, played by Tim Simons, yes. the legend, um, <laughs> would not have been able to be fleshed out to the degree that they were and given the backstories that they were. I think Lara probably would have been given short shrift, you know, in mm-hmm. the service of the Miles-Alaska um, relationship. We have a scene in— third episode where Laura they're sitting at the hospital after Miles has been concussed and Laura is able just to tell her whole story yeah and that would never have made it I don't think into the yeah. into a final future
3: I think there's lots of things like that that we just it would have been all about like the Miles Alaska relationship and how are we driving to this one moment and would have lost everything else and, and it, was it
0: was it exciting to obviously with the, the book you know the last moment but is it exciting almost to work within the the sort of parameters of like and we're writing towards an ending yes
3: yeah
2: Huge, very much huge. so. Huge, yes. Yeah. You're not like, okay, now to how do we put this into a new triangle and ignite this new story that's going to have to drive another 40 episodes. Right, yeah,
3: or the network has just ordered, you know, five additional episodes, so we're doing 27 this year. <laughs> right, and
0: Miles comes back as a assistant teacher at <laughs> yeah. school, yeah. yeah.
3: I'm sure people are very all- lucky or glad that Oliver did not show up <laughs> at the Culver no Creek Academy because we had to fill out our order to get to 27. <laughs> but
2: it was also nice with just working with the cast to be able to have uh-huh. Kind of. This is where your character is headed. This is where this arc is going, and be able to just service that in a way that you just can't when it's so open ended in television. Yeah,
3: we also insisted on getting ten days per episode, uh-huh. which our shows would normally be seven and a half or eight days. Right, and that network. day and a half
0: is huge.
3: Yeah, right. It just was. It just changed like the number of takes you can do, the amount of work you have to get done in every day. Like, everyone just got to be able to really concentrate and focus and do things more than one time, and we didn't have that. There's always days when you're rushing, but it wasn't that same, like, panicked feeling of, like, it's just... Got to move
0: on. Well, also feels really real there. You know the yeah. the, the mm-hmm. smoking hole and the and, and the campus. It feels. It doesn't feel stagey at all. It doesn't feel sound stagey at all. And it was it, real. Yeah. The I have the horsefly bites. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so how long was boys zoom? How long did you it? shoot
2: for? It was about five months. March wow. to July. Yeah. 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 And by the way, we were shooting. So we shot the you know the beginning of the show in March. So we're shooting like it's late summer, beginning of fall. Uh-huh. Everyone's arriving at school when it was cold right. in Louisiana, and then we were shooting. Winter in July in rural Louisiana. So those scenes on the like Tim Simon's has this story when he's on the bus at the funeral um, and he can't get off the bus yeah. to go to the funeral yeah. and he could just it, you know it was a hundred and eight degrees. <laughs> oh, he's God. in a suit, everyone's in wool clothes, and he could hear off screen someone say, "Could someone please tell Tim to stop sweating?"
3: <laughs> and he's like, "It is impossible." <laughs> so we
2: really put in these extras, these poor extras yeah. who came and you know who were at the funeral, all wearing wool. In, in, in the heat was quite uh, intense. The other thing I was going to say when you're asking about the, the, the room or how breaking these stories, it was nice because we had the book. Mm-hmm. We had the feature script, you know. And then it was really about just taking these sections and, and opening them up. So something like Thanksgiving always, always felt like Thanksgiving was going to be an episode. Yeah. You could really kind of spend all that extra time with the colonel and his mom, and she's fantastic, Danine who plays Dolores, um, but then also be able to add in something like the encounter with Dr. Hyde. Uh-huh. So we would have these kind of—we kind of knew, okay, this next episode, this is the big prank in the school dance. You know, you
0: had certain touchstones for each episode, and I think that also was a really nice roadmap. Uh, I want to end it by asking you guys about the music. Because I've I checked, there's already, like, dozens of Spotify playlists. About. We have an actual soundtrack. Yeah, I, yeah. I think I yeah. saw the actual soundtrack playlist. How hard was it to restrain yourselves? How like wh- how did you make your decisions? I don't know that we did restrain yeah. ourselves.
3: <laughs> <laughs> we had a very large music budget. Because the irony is, a lot of these bands we put on the OC because they were indie and we could afford them because we didn't have a huge music budget. Well, they're not indie anymore. Um, they're huge bands that everybody knows. And the titles that we're asking for are now catalog titles. Right. And so uh, we were looking at a very different economy. <laughs>
0: yeah. The we clap were. your hands and say, yeah, market has changed a little. <laughs> in the last, this, They might still be somewhat oh, no, more affordable. I'm sure away. they still do very well for themselves. <laughs> yeah. But it was, it was just, it's just I remember being, I was working at Kim's in New York when that that, that record, the first record came out. And I think Pitchfork gave it Best New Music. And it was all of a sudden, it was like we were giving away free money at the store. It was like the <laughs> line to get to get the Arcade Fire. And it was a good album. Yeah. Arcade Fire, still really hard to clear.
2: But, so were yeah. you
0: drawing from your personal libraries? Was there like always a running, looking for Alaska playlist in your head?
2: Yeah. I mean, there was the songs that were uh, in the script that was on that CD that I had burned. Yeah. <laughs> and then sent out with the script. So that was... And, and a lot of those songs have made it in. So the show always opened or the movie always opened with Crosses by Jose Gonzalez. I feel like that cover of Milkshake was always playing, the uh-huh. Callis cover, um, which is actually an 03 cover, yeah. or an 04 cover. Um,
3: uh, and then there were songs that like, we wanted to use on the OC, like that Block Party song we put to picture like 20 times. Rilo Kiley tried 20 times, never quite work. Different
2: or, songs by those bands. But, but it yeah.
3: felt like, wow, this is... Because we're going to use them in this moment.
2: This is our opportunity. And there was other songs. You know, there was so- something like Death Cab. I'll follow you in the dark. Mm-hmm was a song we really wanted to use on the OC. And obviously, we had a long-standing relationship with Death Cab, which I think at the time, they were cool with, and then they were kind of uncomfortable with right. I think at one point, Ben Gibber was like, you know, we're more than just this band. The and, OC band. Yeah, yeah, which, totally fair. And I, <laughs> I concur. Um, and when that song first came out, it was too personal to them to license at the uh-huh. time. And so that was a moment where we're like, oh, Death Cab is saying no. Which is, <laughs> again, totally fair. Yeah. And here... Um, they were open to it, and we loved the idea of having it covered. Uh, And Maya Follick does this beautiful cover of it that's really haunting. And actually, all of the covers, with the exception of our Macarena cover, (laughs) uh, our trap Macarena (laughs) uh, cover, uh, are all done by female vocalists. And that was about, you know, obviously a lot of indie rock was male vocal driven back then. And so trying to give, as we were also trying to get inside of Alaska's head and illuminate kind of her emotions, we felt like the music could go a long way to that and having... Uh, Female vocalists cover these songs was a way to achieve that.
3: Yeah, Uh, and like I'll Follow You Into the Dark is a great example of like hearing that with a female vocal, and all of a sudden it's, you know, maybe it's Alaska's singing it to Miles. Or maybe Alaska's singing it to her mom, mm-hmm. like it doesn't become about his feelings about her. Yeah, it's
0: not just mixtapes going back
3: and yeah. forth. Yeah. And
0: I had no idea.
2: Uh, France Ferdinand's Take Me Out was so sad until I heard yeah. the <laughs> cover of the show. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and The Bravery and uh, Orange Sky, Alexi Merrick, Orange Sky. So there were songs that we had used on the show, but that on the OC, but then we wanted to have new, new takes or new context. What did the kids who were on the show think of the music? They were really into it. I mean, for some of them, it was new. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and we played a lot of music on set. And Charlie Plummer, who plays Miles, walks just would walk around set all day with a little speaker. Oh, cool. Uh, but he was usually playing like – you know Travis Scott. It's <laughs> a little bit of a I different think the, vibe. The
0: Travis Scott version of Looking for Alaska <laughs> plays a little bit different. That's in the next fifteen years. Yeah, yeah, right. I want to ask one last question, which is just about the very, very uh, like sweet OC drop that happens in the, in the in this series where uh, Miles and Laro staying around. And they're a very, very relatable early binging thing where they <laughs> on DVD yeah, on their laptop. And I remember running around Brooklyn renting uh, discs of early 24 when my, my that was the breakthrough TV mm-hmm. show yeah. on DVD it was like yeah. we have to and I was there was a I was wondering if you guys could come up with like a blooper reel of like the different shows that they could have been <laughs> on because it would have felt different if it was Kiefer Sutherland being like tell me what you know <laughs> it takes you out of the shooting a guy in the knee yeah, yeah that would be cool but that was great I mean did you did you write it in that way or was that something that was we just,
2: actually didn't write that into this sc- yeah. that was written by uh two of our writers Warren Sue Leonard and Ashley Wigfield they wrote it in it's not something we would have felt comfortable writing in ourselves. Okay. But because they wrote it in and everybody's like, no, it's funny, leave it. Because we didn't know, like, what's that line? Right. You know, like, obviously <laughs> we we like meta things. Right. And even on the OC, they watched a show called The Valley, and we were kind of deconstructing it as we went. But we, you know, I don't know if that's a line that and we Christine
3: were. And Christine was a huge fan of the show. And while we were shooting, she was, like, making Charlie watch it. So there was kind of this feeling of like, she didn't tell us
2: when we first cast her that she and then afterwards she's like, I have something to tell you. And then like photos started to surface of her at like age 12, like clutching magazines with Misha Barton's face on the cover. And she said, so she got Charlie to start watching and one day we're on set and she said, don't, you know, we'll just watch up until Marissa dies. And And Charlie goes, Marissa dies? And he was so stricken. So it's, you know, um. It was not just an homage to ourselves, but
0: also Christian. No, it was, yes. and it felt it, it played. It was real. You know, I think I think it really made sense. Well, thank you guys so much for coming by. I really love this show, and I, I'm, I'm glad people are checking it out. Have you gotten a lot of nice feedback from not just because it's not just book fans now? It's it fans starts like with you guys. the
2: book. It starts with the book fans, yeah. and it definitely there was a lot of people who hold this book in high regard. This you know this book was there for a lot of people during difficult times in their life, and yeah. I think John has a really profound relationship with his readership yeah. because of that. So they're obviously the ones who are the most skeptical, scared, what have you, going into it. And their responses have been just so gratifying and and feeling, you know, very – pleased with how it's been adapted understanding that we've changed some things obviously mm-hmm. moving it into a series but clearly we love this book as much as they do and now it's starting to broaden out into people who haven't read the book and it's been really exciting. yeah I actually
0: i haven't read the book you know really? I, yeah mm. i i I've, i read interesting other genre, i would not I, have seen i would not have expected I, that. I think i just missed it when it came out and then i i knew about paper towns and stuff like that but i just was like oh yeah i didn't know he had another book and uh i so i was very surprised by some of the things that happened in the show, which is nice. And it's almost interesting to look at it with my eyes because I didn't have this sort of pre-existing relationship with it but i was also quite shocked by the, by the end of it because i was like oh that doesn't look like that bad of a car accident be like, really well i mean I, you don't know who's in it for that's a true. while yeah, and i was true. like and then i about around five i was like they're gonna have to start looking for alaska <laughs> <seat."> <laughs> this doesn't bode well <laughs> so yeah uh well thank you I'm so much. we can for, have a good laugh about that yes <laughs> right you know all in fun. uh thank you guys so much for coming by i don't want to keep you any longer stephanie and josh thanks for coming on the watch love being thank here thank you so much Thanks for listening to my interview with Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage from Looking for Alaska. You can watch that on Hulu. We'll be back on Monday with more watch. Thanks, guys. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Watchmen. Watchmen has come to HBO. Inspired by the groundbreaking graphic novel of the same name, Damon Lindelof's Watchmen is set in an alternate history of present-day America, where the lines between vigilantes and mass crime fighters have permanently blurred. Starring Regina King and Jeremy Irons, Watchmen airs
3: Sundays at 9 p.m. only on HBO.